Brendan. Hi. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Yes, I'm excited for part two of this. I was listening to the very end of uh, the first recording that we did, and, and I was I was starting to get excited because now we're going to continue into this new, um, I was going to say new era of conversation, but new phase of our conversation, which is more geared towards understanding the economic system and understanding money. So we left off at talking about GICs, and um, you you had some things to say. So Keegan, you. <laughs> You used a really funny term. You said that I had to muddle, I'm going to muddle my way through explaining the whole GIC scenario. And uh, Brendan, what you said was uh, it like the GIC part of it is that you get a guaranteed return. So I kind of want to explore the difference in both of your opinions, because Keegan, you were saying that it was it's a guaranteed loss and you were saying it's not necessarily a guaranteed loss. So what's that about? Right. So uh, a GIC does give you a guaranteed rate of return as far as the dollars go. So a GIC being a guaranteed investment certificate, the idea is that you would give your money to a bank, they put it in a GIC, it's locked away for a certain amount of time. That could be a few months, it could be a year, it could be multiple years. And your money is unavailable to you until the term of that GIC expires. And when it expires, the bank would then say, uh, great. Well, the you know the term that you signed up for with your GIC was at this interest rate. So say it was you know one percent interest, and they would calculate how much interest you had earned out over the length of that GIC, and give you back your original investment plus the interest. So you are guaranteed to get that money in there as long as you leave it in the GIC and don't withdraw early. However, I think Keegan's point was that inflation is a thing, and. Uh, you know, you, when you when you put your money in a GIC, uh, you can still like lose value due to um, your your currency being inflated, right? So suppose you had it locked away for one year at a one percent interest, and the inflation rate for that year was two percent. Well, then you've actually lost one percent of the actual like purchasing power of your money. Well, how many people in general, if if there is a stat for this, put their money locked away in investing in bonds? I think a lot of people do. Um, it may or may not be bonds, or it may be you know GICs. Um, it really depends on the individual. But I think uh, a lot of people, when they when they think about you know putting their money in a savings account, they may not be aware of the options that are available to them as far as investments are concerned. And uh, banks, they really like GICs. They love to get money in GICs because it's basically free money as far as they're concerned. So. Um, that's often one of the first things that'll be put forth. It's like, oh, you're trying to save a bit of money and you want it to be safe. You don't want any risk of losing your principal at all. Well, then a GIC is probably where it belongs. Even if you put it into bonds, there is still some risk associated with that because if the uh, rates change, then the value of your bond goes down. So for example, if, if, um, if you have money in a bond that's supposed to be you know, paying interest at a certain rate and um, the interest rates then rise, well, that decreases the value of your bond. So I, I think it might be worth defining uh, the difference between a bond and a GIC because uh, I remember asking that question and you briefly. Uh, I thought it was the same because you talked. You said that GIC is a guaranteed something certificate, investment certificate, investment certificate, and which is a bond. But there's a difference. Yeah, there there is a difference. Yeah, so um, you can think of them as like they're kind of similar, and that you're both like they're both investments, and you both uh, you know you put your money into it, and you're expected to be paid out at a certain interest rate. Um, a GIC is like a locked in account where you can't buy or sell. Um, you know, in the middle of the term, it's just for whatever you agree to, and you're only going to get what the what the interest rate is on that, and that's the end of it. 
as far as bonds are concerned, there's actually like a bond market. So you can buy and sell bonds on the market. And the value of those bonds reflects the, the um, rate of interest on that bond relative to what the current market interest rates are. So if you purchased a bond that had, say, a 2% rate on it, and uh, you held that bond for a little while, and then, and, and like say, say that was a fair rate when the bond was, when you first purchased the bond or when the bond was issued. And then a couple of years later, the interest rates have risen. So now instead of, say, like 2% being the market rate, the rate for a new bond is 4%. Does your original bond look attractive? No. It doesn't, right? Because you are earning below market interest on this bond. So you can sell that bond, but people aren't going to pay you the face value of the bond for it because it's worth less because the interest rates are lower, right? Or sorry, I guess the market interest rates are higher, your bond's rate is lower relative to the market, so it's worth less. Um, the converse is also possible. So suppose you took out a bond at a 4% rate and then interest rates crashed down to 2%. Now your bond is actually worth more because you have this amazing bond that's paying out 4% interest for 20 or 30 years, even though the rates and the market rates are lower. So in that case, if you were to try to sell it, you would get back more money for your bond. So with a bond, you're not guaranteed the, um, the like to get back the exact amount of money that you put in. Now, if, if you held the bond for the duration, which is a very long time in most cases, um, then yeah, you you know at the end of the bond, the bond has to be paid off. Um, subject to you know the the holder's ability to pay off the bond, right? Like you, you could lend it to municipalities or companies or or governments, right? And so generally they do get paid off, but there's still risk that they don't get paid off. And but if they do, then you generally would make back the full amount at that point way down the road. But in the meantime, your your interest rate is fixed. And is the value of the bond related to the inflation that a country faces? Um, it's a good question. I, I don't think I would say it's directly related. Um, like the, it really boils down to what people are willing to pay to buy that income stream off you. Like a bond gives you an income stream over a certain amount of time. And so the question is like, what is that income stream worth? So if there is inflation in the meantime, well, then the face value of the bond is lower and the amount of money that you like, the amount of value that you're getting out of the interest on it is also lower. But that would be true whether you're holding the cash or the bond. So, Brendan, uh, how familiar are you with the, the, the DeFi yield markets and uh, like lending stable coins to, to earn a earn a return? I mean, this is kind of analogous to the whole conversation we've just been having around bonds and GICs. Um, other than there's absolutely no guarantee that you'll get your money back if you put them in these uh, these cryptocurrency yield farming schemes. Um, but they're, they kind of act the same way Like you can buy and sell these investment contracts. Uh, that's more or less what they are. And you can basically buy passive income by putting your money into these things. And I think some of the speculation in the crypto space is that these, um, these yield far yield farming markets are going to start capturing market share from the bonds and GIC, uh, markets. Uh, do, do, do you have a comment on that at all? I'm not super familiar with the DeFi space. I know that you, I've heard of this, you know, lending stable coins and that sort of thing. Right. Um, to be honest, I, I personally haven't looked into it that much. Um, I think it's interesting, but I, I think it's more interesting from like a meta level where um, it's almost like the crypto space is, is, you know, trying to reinvent finance, right? And it started right. from square one where, you know, you've got something like Bitcoin and boom, we have like this nice global currency type thing that people believe has value and so on, right? And 
the further you go down this rabbit hole, the more you will run into the same problems that traditional finance ran into like hundreds of years ago, probably. And which the, was that? What was that? Which well, just in terms of like, if you, if you want to lend money to somebody, how do you do that? What are the rules around that? What happens if the person you lent money to is unable to pay? Right. So those are problems that the financial system ran into hundreds of years ago, maybe thousands of years ago when people, you know, lending pieces of gold and, you know, like, yeah. like Roman denarii and that sort of stuff. Uh, that, that's been a problem for a very long time. And we're, you, you know, you see the same sort of problem where um, you mentioned if you put your money into these DeFi um, lending schemes, maybe you get your money back and maybe you don't. I mean, I, I assume there's some sort of like smart contracts associated with that to hopefully provide some, some actually, sort of... Yeah, you always get your money back. Um, it's just whether or not uh, the value of the thing you're holding has retained retained the value. So uh, like if you're lending Bitcoin, for example, Bitcoin can rise and fall. So in dollar terms, you're not getting the same amount of dollars back. And then there's this other thing called... The but, you, but you would loss. always get the same amount of, of crypto back, whatever unit it's denominated in. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, and then there's other, this other thing called impermanent loss. And that, that has to do with providing liquidity and you put two assets into uh, this liquidity pool to provide uh, liquidity between the two of them. Um, but uh, like just the way that it all balances out, uh, when you withdraw it, you can get less of one and more of the other, um, but you're getting the same amount of dollars back. It's a, it's a strange little phenomenon. Um, yeah. It, it's so fascinating the many ways that people have figured out to wrap money into something <laughs> that looks different than money to earn more money which also looks different than money, but it's, I mean, what is value in this case, right? Cause you're just talking about how you can put money or cryptocurrency into liquidity pools to supply um, this, the cash flow that you're essentially buying. And what is the logic in that is a slightly circular, but it, it works for some reason. And when you were talking about the banks, uh, the bonds and GICs, Brendan, and I was just thinking, oh my gosh, it's, like when someone buys a bond, right? The money that they have given to whoever they buy the bond from, what is that money being used for? And how are they able to provide the interest rate that they are? And how does this interest rate even change? Like what, what determines those factors? And that's just one way of earning capital or earning cash flow, so to speak. There's so many things, so many other ways that you can put your money into something and they give you money in return because you've invested capital in that particular thing. But man, like what, what, where is this money going? What is it being used for? Have you ever given that a thought? Well, it, it really depends on the bond and who is issuing the bond, right? So um, municipalities are big issuers of, on bonds, right? If they need to build infrastructure for their city, they often don't have the cash on hand. So what they will do is they will issue a bond and say, we need $100 million and we're willing to pay an interest rate of 4% um, for 20 years. And then at 20 years, we're going to pay off the, the base value of the bond, which means Wait. you buy that bond and you would get an income stream from it. But when you say that, that's so interesting. So you're saying that if someone doesn't have money, they want to issue a bond, which is essentially a contract in this case, saying that give us money, we'll give you money in return. But they're starting with zero money, but asking for money, saying that they'll give you more money. And then in 20 years time, they'll give you back the money you gave them in the first place. Yes. <laughs> so so this this is like kind of the, the core... Um, one of the core features of lending, right? Like if you're, if you yeah. need money for something, like whether you're buying a house or you're doing renovations or you want a car or like, if you don't have the cash to do it up front, you have to finance it. Where do you get the money from? Why would anybody lend you money? And 
that's that's like kind of the core thing is like if you're going to go um, try to take out a mortgage to buy a house, you're generally going to go to a bank and say, bank, will you lend me enough money to buy the house? And they will look at you and they will decide whether they think you are worthy of receiving a loan. And they do that based on like, what is your credit history? Um, have you declared bankruptcy recently? Have you missed credit card payments or had like, is there is there other lending history where you've shown yourself to be reliable or not? And then they'll also look at your income. And they'll look at other loans that you might have. So they'll say, well, this person, suppose they're working a job and earning $50,000 a year. Um, if we assume that it's sustainable for them to spend up to a third of their income on interest payments, then what is the maximum amount of money they're able to borrow and still be able to make those payments? And how much money have they already borrowed? Right. So it looks at all these different factors and decides whether or not you are a good candidate for it. And in the case of a house, it's even secured by collateral. So um, you buy a house... And you, you know, as a mortgage, you get like you get quite good interest rates on a mortgage as far as, as rates go, right? Um, if you compare that to the rates you pay on a credit card, it's insanely good. Credit cards are what twenty to thirty percent per year is what they charge in interest. Uh, a mortgage these days is more like two percent. So the reason they're able to do that is because even if you stop making your payments, the bank has your house as collateral meaning they they essentially have an ownership stake on your house where if you stop making the payments, the bank can take your house and say, your house is now my house and I'm going to sell it and get my money back. And it's a pain for them to do that. They obviously don't want to do that. It's a huge hassle and, and nobody really wins when you do that, um, which is why they're careful about who they even give a mortgage to. But they always have that, that point of recourse, which means that it is, that, in fact, very safe for them to lend money as a mortgage. And so you have the same sort of thing with bonds. So if a city is trying to build an infrastructure project, usually there's some financial reason they want to do it. So they'll say, well, the reason we need $100 million is because we have a new um, you know, subdivision going up. And that subdivision is going to start paying us property taxes when people build on it and start moving into it. So it will increase the income of the city. But in order to do that, you have to build it first. So it requires upfront investment. And so you know, in that case, the city would finance these development costs based on the expectation of earning increased property taxes or whatever kind of other kind of revenues they look for. And it's a little bit know, different though with the city, right? Because it's they're kind of collateralizing that debt agreement with their word or with the fact that they are a government, rather. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas so governments with, get really good rates, especially you know, like <laughs> federal government sort of thing, because they can just print money if they need to, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, that uh, they're not going to default on their debt. Like, otherwise, if there was the risk of them defaulting, it sounds a little bit like a pyramid scheme. Uh, like, give us this money, and if uh, and we're going to start paying out these uh, these interest payments to you because you've, you've bought this GIC or this bond from us. And uh, there's no risk of them not being able to pay that back to you because eventually uh, well, they the, can... the risk is low. Um Okay, it, it, it is possible. Municipalities do declare bankruptcy occasionally. In that case, normally, like you know, you know, the provincial government would step in, or if it's if a provincial government is on the brink of bankruptcy, the federal government steps in. In fact, we saw this recently with uh, with the case of Newfoundland and Labrador. So oh, I, I don't know if you're, you're paying attention, but right, they've they've got this uh, hydroelectric project they're working on in Labrador. Right, Muskrat Falls. Um, Muskrat Falls, exactly. And this has been a project that's been ongoing for probably almost 10 years now, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And it's gone way over budget and to the point where the entire province is, you know, they were already in debt and now they're even more deeply in debt and uh, they don't have the ability to just print their way out of it. So um, the most recent update I heard on that is that the federal government stepped in and said, here, we're going to give you $5 billion and hopefully that makes things a little bit easier for you on this. 
right? So that's money that's outside of the standard equalization payments that provinces either give or get. Um, that's like just free cash. Uh, maybe, maybe there's some strings attached in terms of like having some sort of federal oversight on the project to make sure it goes well. But, you know, the point is that like the, the buck has to stop somewhere. And in this case, it didn't stop with the province. They, you know, the federal government said they're in a really hard spot. We can't have an entire province declaring bankruptcy or like having to raise its taxes to the point that it crashes its own economy. We're going to have to step in and do something. And so, you know, municipalities have similar kinds of relationships, but that doesn't mean it's not possible for them to default on a loan. They absolutely could. This whole phenomenon of because I said so, this is going to happen, uh, or by my decree, I'm going to print so much money. It, like, I really wonder how long it can go on for because I'm, I'm currently reading this book by Stephanie Keldon called um, the, the, de- the Deficit Myth, and it's ta- it's touching on modern monetary theory where it's distinguishing the government from the people, and you know we need we need to have an income. We need to have some sort of, um, you know, reserves or cash for equity or whatever in order for us to get debt, but we can't be compared to what the government can do to take on more debt. So like we're all in agreement that the government is just issuing money to stimulate the economy out of this crisis. Um, and, but like, where does, like, what is the next step for that? Because if they are not held accountable by any other outside party and they are essentially printing more money because they can and because they said they need to what's the end there because there there's just no, no no limit or no cap and there seems to be no cap in in this sort of phenomenon of just printing money because they can because they need to it it just seems never ending and i wonder if the same sort of scenario that took place with Muskrat falls where they were 10 years um, it, it took 10 years, they were over budget and they needed, they either needed to fail and then reap, reap the consequences or deal with the consequences. And then the federal government had to step in and bail them out. But then is there going to be such a situation with the federal government where it has inflated its currency so much that there's no bailing out? You just have to fail in order to then deal with the consequences and rebuild the system in such a way that this, this doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so <laughs> this is a lot to unpack there. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as long as a government has control of their monetary policy, meaning they can print money basically, right? Um, they're not, you know, they're not going to default. Uh, but they also need to maintain some sort of um, trust in their currency because at the end of the day, like you said, right, it's all based on trust. It's not like you can go to the bank and give them a $20 bill and say, give me the equivalent amount of gold that backs that because there is nothing that backs it. Um, so, uh, yes, at the end of the day, if they print too much money, then the, it's it's almost like an indirect tax on everybody who uses that currency as their base currency because that inflates the value of it or you know like or it, it, it decreases the value of every individual dollar and that that sucks but that's kind of like that's that's the thing that makes it all make sense right is is the ability to do that if you don't have the ability to do that um then you know you can have a government that controls fiscal policy like how they're taxing and how they're spending but with without the ability to control monetary policy then they there's, they need to be very fiscally responsible. Otherwise, they end up in a really sticky situation, similar to what happened in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, you could look at what happened to uh, Greece, um, probably, let me say, that was probably 10 years ago, like just after the last uh, big financial crisis, right? Um, Greece had control of its fiscal policy, 
but not its monetary policy because they were using the euro. That right. responsibility lay with you know the European Central Bank. And uh, when Greece looked like they were going to go bankrupt, it's, it was then in, like it was a big point of discussion in the European Union. What do we do about this? Do we let them fail? In which case, that can have knock-on effects that crash other neighboring economies, or do we bail them out, which is also not really fair to all of the countries that were operating in a fiscally responsible manner, right? But you're at the end of the day, you're stuck with that hard choice. That's really interesting. I'm glad that you made that distinction between monetary policy and fiscal policy. And just to like speak that back to you, fiscal policy would be uh, like on the municipal or provincial level where they don't have the ability to print themselves out of uh, out of their out of their issues, let's just say. But uh, like the, the system that we came out of uh, 50, 60 years ago, like a gold back system, that monetary policy was essentially provided by the backing or the binding between our currency and the gold. Whereas now the monetary policy is, is provided by, by trust and by decree, by fiat, so to speak. Well, to some extent, you could say that applied to gold as well, right? Because you could just, you just were one step removed, right? Like, well, what backs gold? Right. Well, right? and you could say, well, gold is a useful material and you make jewelry out of it and you can make electronics out of it. Right. But um, if you look at the actual like market value of gold for the, the useful things it does as a material, um, the value of gold per ounce today is not propped up by by its physical use. Right. Like the, the value of gold is propped up by the fact that people believe it's valuable and it's been a store of value for thousands of years and people believe that it's going to continue to be valuable. So that's right. Whether you believe that about the dollar or about gold, you know, or about, or about Bitcoin, Bitcoin. <laughs> it's like that's that's like the fundamental like illusion that makes it work, right? Is everybody has to believe in it, and then when you believe in it, then magically it has value and it can source. It can be like this backstop for economics. That's my yeah. favorite. Yeah. Well, I've also heard of the argument that um, if we didn't get off of the gold system, then we would not have had as much progress as we had as we have in the past century. Like we would not have had the in industrial revolution innovate at the scale that they did had we not been able to lend or take money from the government in order to do so. And if we were backed by the gold system, then there wouldn't be enough money or capital to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So, like, where do you stand on that? And I think I think the ability to, to um, lend and borrow money is absolutely critical. It's um, I look at it. As, I mean, it's not just me, but probably lots of people see it this way. But it's it's essentially like the ability to reach into the future and like move value from the future to today, right? So like you need a place to live, you need a house. You don't have enough money to buy or build a house in terms of like actual cash on hand. So what are you what are you going to do, right? Or money for yourself? <laughs> yeah. So it's like borrowing from your future self. You're saying, well, I believe that I, in the next, over the next 10 or 20 years, I will earn enough to be able to buy a house or build a house or whatever, but I actually need that house today. How do I do that? Well, you convince somebody to give you the money now, which you can then use for the things you need now and pay it off over time, right? And if you're not able to do that, whether it's in the context of a house or in the context of um, governments investing in infrastructure or in the context of companies taking on um, projects saying, hey, we're going to build a factory that produces this widget, but we need $10 million to be able to get the factory off the ground running. And we're not going to make any money on this project until we actually have it up and running and selling and we have a marketing engine spun up around it and all that stuff. So again, it's like saying you have this thing you want to do in the future that's going to make it all make sense. How do you bring that to the present so that you can actually like get the ball rolling? 
And, and I think that's totally critical. If the if lending and borrowing weren't a thing, we would have you know no ability to to finance projects and do ambitious things. That's true. And I think some of the ideas that are funded um, and are innovated upon, they do end up being successful and they can pay back the initial investors with the promised returns. But I, the the ideas that aren't successful, it's for those that I feel like we need to let them fail because it, it's like we really don't want there to be any sort of failure at all, which is why when something doesn't work, instead of letting them fail, they are being bailed out. And that's not a very great system or fair system because there's no balance there. If everything succeeds, like I just I don't understand how oh, anything's no going to balance reward, itself out. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That. That's a really good point. So, yeah. sorry, go for it. Uh, no, no, it's fine. Go ahead. Oh, so so last year, towards the end of the year, I was reading a lot about money and economics, and man, only scratched the surface. But the more I learned about it, I started feeling that there was this cloud of gloom over all of us and it was just about to burst and it hasn't yet it's been you know eight months or so but i still feel like in the near future with the system that we are living in the system that we have built needs some sort of course correction and that hasn't happened yet that keeps trying to happen but we're trying to put a band-aid on a bursting pipe and that's not going to last very long so I suspect there is going to be some sort of economic crash in the future. This is not a prediction. This is not a conspiracy theory or anything for everyone who's listening. This is just my feeling from what I have re- read and learned. Brendan, do you have any sort of such feelings or um, not a prediction, but like something about the future? Uh, in a long enough time horizon, there will definitely be a crash. Um, what kind of crash it is, I think, is very hard to predict. And when is also really hard to predict. Um, so, you know, people have been predicting crashes pretty much since the beginning of time. And occasionally we do get crashes. Um, but the recovery always seems to follow up relatively quickly. Even even like, I mean, COVID is a great example, right? Uh, and and nobody, nobody really saw it coming. And then all of a sudden, the entire world stops working, right? <laughs> Everyone's like, no, nah, we're just going to stay home for a few months, see what happens. And in some industries, it was looking like, oh, maybe they won't be able to spin back up at all. Like the hospitality industry, it's just like, no, you're just, you're just going to have to shut down for a year and a half and uh, see what happens, right? So how do you recover from that? How, what kind of impact does that have on the economy when, when like people just stop doing everything that they do? And so at the time I was just like, well, this is crazy. You know, like it's no wonder the markets crashed because everybody stopped doing everything. Right? <laughs> Yet uh, now we're at these um, like all time highs, even though we're still not all the way out of the pandemic yet. So I like, to me, it doesn't make perfect sense. But um, again, this is why it's really hard to do. If you had asked me, uh, you know, a year ago from this March, like kind of like in the depths of the COVID oh no moment, right? When everyone's like, we don't know what's happening and the world has stopped doing everything. Um, my personal feeling was that like the wheels are going to come off the whole thing, right? <laughs> like you can't just have people stop doing this and because they probably won't be able to start up again in the same sort of way. Um, there's lots of things that require very long time periods to start up. There's supply chain issues where you're making something that requires a hundred distinct pizzas from a hundred different suppliers and they have to be delivered on schedule in the correct quantities, right? And that you can do that when everything is like running relatively smoothly and stably. But as soon as you stop it, there's no clear way to like boot it back up again in, in an efficient or reliable way. And we're, so we're seeing the effects of that now in terms of things like the, um, uh, the chip shortage, 
right? Like Toyota just a couple of weeks ago cut its global production capacity by 40% because they can't get enough of this very specific kind of microchip. Holy crap, you know, like they have almost everything else they need for the cars, but this one thing they were missing and they have to cut their global capacity by that amount. It's crazy, right? But that's just how interconnected all of these things are. And it's very hard to like kind of trace it back and say, you know, it came from here and this will be the effect if we stop it. And so these sorts of things are why a lot of monetary policy is based around the idea of preventing these shocks that you get from, from crashes and depressions. Because when you get shocks, then it has these knock-on effects that continue for months or years after, after the fact and can have impacts like, you know, one of the largest car manufacturers cutting half its capacity, right? So it, I, I, I get that, like, it seems like we're playing a bit of a Ponzi game here with the government just, like, printing money and, like, throwing it and doing everything they can to prevent failure. But it's usually done uh, with the goal of, of preventing these sorts of crashes, which then impact everything else in the world. Uh, that's not to say it's always done correctly, right? And sometimes maybe it's like a little bit too much. And it, it's, yeah. it's not that it doesn't have impacts. Like, you know, maybe we're witnessing massive inflation in asset values now as a result of the, you know, monetary policy to print trillions of dollars and, and pump it into the market. So there's definitely knock-on effects and there's good things and bad things, you know? Do you, do you give your close family and friends circle um, advice on what they can invest in so as to prevent themselves from Im- getting impacted by any such economic uh, wrinkle? <laughs> uh, people, people do ask me for my opinion on things. I usually don't give them specific things to invest in. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I, like, the, the key thing that I try to communicate to people is that if you want to protect yourself from inflation, which is like the really, that's like the scary monster, right? Like if the government prints too much money, we end up in hyperinflation and, you know, the wheels fall off everything. If you want to protect yourself from something like that, the key is to own things that are not denominated in dollars or have value that's independent of the value of a dollar. So that, that could be real estate because people are always going to need places to live, you know, unless the population somehow gets cut in half, like, you know, people need like places to live. And, Israel and he snaps a finger. <laughs> right, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, like there's lots of things that are going to continue to have value regardless of what a dollar is. And then like, you kind of have to think of it in terms of like, if a dollar is no longer worth a dollar anymore, what what do we do, right? And so- But what is that worth counted in two? Because a dollar is not worth a dollar anymore. It hasn't <clears throat> been ever since we got off the gold back system. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I mean, a dollar is not worth anything in gold anymore. It's more like what is gold worth in terms of dollars. But if that changes, then right. gold is worth what gold is worth. And you could trade it for chickens or you could trade it for Bitcoin or you could trade it for dollars. And it boils down to sort of like this um, market participant negotiation of what it's worth. You know, someone will say, I'm willing to trade you, um, you know, this much of a Bitcoin in exchange for gold, but I won't, tr- I won't buy it back from you for more than this amount. And whether you're talking about, you know, dollars or Bitcoin or gold or chickens or houses, right? Like there is some amount of tangible value associated associated with these things. And even Bitcoin, like, you know, you can take the argument, a lot of people do would say that there's no um, tangible value to a Bitcoin, right? It's just numbers in a, in a distributed ledger. Uh, but the fact that it can be used for things and it is being used for things means that there actually is value there, regardless of whether or not it's something you can hold in your hand or what have you, right? So 
you know, there, things do have value. The thing, the, the biggest problem with inflation is like your dollars losing their value. Okay, well, if you if you have your money in something other than dollars, um, whether it's like investments in company or it's cryptocurrencies or it's the fact that you own a house and the house is worth something, right? Like those are all ways to protect yourself from inflation. Do you think that a deflationary currency would be beneficial? I feel like a deflationary currency is not a very good currency because there's no real incentive to spend it. And that's, that's like, I mean, that, that, that's something that like, you know, I learned in like an economics 101 lesson. Right. So maybe I'm just like repeating the, 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 you know, the established the mentality of the dogma or whatever. Right. But I yeah. think there, there is something there. Um, and the reason why I think that is because I've held Bitcoin for a very long period of time and I regret every single Bitcoin I ever spent. <laughs> so why would I continue to spend Bitcoin? It doesn't that's make any right. sense. Right. I guess that's where lending and collateralization takes in or comes in place because without lending and borrowing, we wouldn't really be able to, you know, do the many things that we are able to to do. And with respect to a deflationary currency, that's a practice that we put in play, which is like we have Bitcoin as collateral, given the belief that it is deflationary and the the amount or the price that it is being currently traded at goes up over time, then if we do take out a loan against it in some other currency, then we will be able to pay it back much easier or it'll be beneficial to pay it back later because then that, like the amount that we took the collateral against would have gone up in value and like many factors there. So that's the sort of mentality that rises out of a deflationary currency where you know, or you believe to know that in time, the price of that is going to go up. So in the, would you, I'm not even sure I would call it a currency in that case though, because it's not the Bitcoin you're really interested in. It's, it's like the value of it or, or the fact that like you can, you can use it as collateral for a loan because you think it's likely to maintain its value. Right. But do you actually want to spend your Bitcoin? No, and, and I, I would, I would, Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like say you. that's very similar. That's very similar to like a mortgage, right? Like where you buy a house and the bank is totally fine with using the house as collateral because it's unlikely to lose value. In fact, it's more likely to increase in value over time. So it's a great thing to have as collateral. And if you're taking out loans for Bitcoin and you are so darn sure that Bitcoin is going up and it will never go down, then that's kind of like a similar role as the house is filling in. Um, I think it's pretty clear that Bitcoin is still way more volatile than the real estate market. So like, even and even if you're right in the long run, you may be wrong in the short run and find yourself underwater to the point where the lender says, "Hey, I've lent you a hundred thousand, uh, you know, uh, tether in exchange for this amount of Bitcoin, and now the Bitcoin's value is half. So I no longer have sufficient collateral on my loan. You either need to put up uh, another chunk of Bitcoin to make up the difference, or I'm going to recall my loan. And that's like a really sticky situation to be in. It's basically a margin call where you're borrowing on credit, and uh, and you, you know." now the risk is too high for the lender. Well, what I'm wondering though is, Keegan, that, uh, I mean, there's a strategy of not really, not strategy, but the feeling of not wanting to sell Bitcoin, but we're going to El Salvador in November and we're going to have to spend Bitcoin when we are there, which we're excited to do too. Like we are also for having a Bitcoin-based economy at the same time as not wanting to spend Bitcoin. That's such a weird dichotomy. Like how... Well, it What's is because it that? like it sits in this quasi state of being like not quite a currency and like being, I think it's achieved a store of value status 
um, especially recently in the last two years with institutions and, uh, and now a government coming in and declaring that they see value in it as a store of value. And I kind of think that that in and of itself is, is the, is the kind of validation it needs to, uh, to obtain and retain that status of being a store of value. And then to, to be a currency, I think that something has to exist for more than 12 years <laughs> to be a currency. Um, and Bitcoin's just young. And so it, it's, I actually think that there's, we're going through the monetization of Bitcoin now. And like, what is a money? It's a store of value, a unit of account and a medium of exchange. And we've got the store of value more or less knocked down now. Uh, the unit of account is really tough because it's volatile and it doesn't like I can't track the value of my it's volatile in fiat terms. It's volatile in fiat terms, right? But one Bitcoin is always equal to one Bitcoin. So if I'm measuring my my wealth in terms of Bitcoin, it's actually amazing because uh, my the value of my wealth can never be decreased uh, involuntarily, right? So if I hold one Bitcoin, I hold that percentage of the share of the network always, as long as I don't part with that. Wouldn't that be true for, I guess, yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a percentage of share. I guess I'm just thinking, like, if you denominate your dollars in dollars, then it also never loses value, right? Um, no, it does, because um, the denominator goes up. So as the total... With respect to the total share. Yeah, exactly. Total, total number, yeah, so that, that's, that's what I'm saying. Again, the difference is, like, yeah, the, the share changes, but... Um, but still, I mean, if you're, if, if you're only ever comparing it to itself, then that's going to be true for everything, right? Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think so. I can, because the denominator goes up. Just a really trivial and simple example: if there's only ten dollars in existence and I have one of them, then I hold ten percent of everything. But if some governing party creates ninety more dollars and suddenly there's a hundred of them, then I've my ten percent supply has just been diluted involuntarily down to one percent, and now I only okay. have one percent of all the wealth in existence. Whereas that is not possible to happen within Bitcoin. If I hold one, Bitcoin- I, I think, I think it is though. And I think, I, and this is, this is like where, um, things get really hairy for crypto in my opinion. So as long as you believe there is one true Bitcoin, then yes, <laughs> you are correct. But forks happen, right? And the trust gets fragmented across different forks. And now your value is fragmented across different forks, which are then incompatible going forward. So, um, you can have value cut off your Bitcoin by part of the network fragmenting away. And then your total ownership over everything now goes down because there's copies of these and the, the trust is now partitioned, you know? Right. Yeah. Bitcoin maximalists would say that uh, like all other cryptocurrencies are inflation in the system um, to, to kind of bolster the argument that you just made. And, and like, yeah, these forks and these other cryptocurrencies are essentially taking value away from Bitcoin. Whereas if all the value had accrued to Bitcoin, we, we would be much further or uh, much closer to the monetization of Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin might be a lot more stable. It might be. Uh, well, what, what is Bitcoin? How, how do you define Bitcoin as like, as like a, a, a distinct thing that say this is a Bitcoin and this other thing which behaves exactly like a Bitcoin is not a Bitcoin? I think it, as long as it, uh, you can find that Bitcoin that, that you're holding in your hand, that 12 words or the, uh, your private key, as long as that represents uh, ownership over some, um, some numbers in a ledger I was <laughs> sitting thinking... in Bitcoin Core, like nodes that are running the Bitcoin Core software. Why, that... Why Bitcoin Core? Because that is what the majority of the people believe. believe yeah. And, okay. and so you but, do, but do you, do you see how arbitrary that is, that it boils down to consensus and belief between people who have no real incentive to work for the same goal, you know? 
well, it's the, a decentralized the, system. This is the the the, uh, the debate essentially, right? Like the Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash debate. It's the Bitcoin versus Ethereum debate. Um, like Ethereumites will tell you the exact same thing. Like they're holding the one true world currency, and uh, they've dumped all their money into into Ethereum, and they went they, they went go full Ethereum rather than go full Bitcoin. And, and and even then, they're still making choices, right? Like when uh, when Ethereum had its like uh, really significant hard fork, where Ethereum Classic kind of split off, right? Uh, you know, a significant fraction of the network said, uh, we believe in Vitalik and we think that he is, he has the right vision for Ethereum and we're okay with him rolling back these transactions, which happened, you know, like legally, according to the code of the, of the blockchain, we're okay right. with him going back and making a judgment call on it and, or, you know, undoing that versus people who said, no, I mean, they were playing by the rules of the system. We've been saying code is law for the, for all this time, and somebody just exploited a loophole in the law of our blockchain to take $100 million worth of Ethereum or whatever, right? And Satoshi um, did the same thing in 2010. Right. So, like, at the end of the day, you're choosing to go down one path versus another and saying, I believe this is the currency versus that one. Or you could right. say, maybe both of them are equally valid, and I don't really care about the politics of it, right? But <laughs> you're, the point is that you you... Even in something that says we have a fixed number of tokens that are ever going to be created, you can still have that inflate away. And there is still like the politicization of it where you have to like pick a path or be so totally neutral that you don't care about who's running the chain at all. Right. Yeah, I, I appreciate the argument that you're making, Brendan. And I think that uh, I, I would I would chalk it up to this. Like, I think that people should have the ability to choose the currency that they use. Like. I'm not comfortable with currencies being imposed on people necessarily. Um, like, so I'm, I'm not so much of a maximalist that like I, I hold 95% Bitcoin, but at the same time, I actually respect your decision to choose Ethereum as your, your core currency is if you want to measure your wealth in Ethereum and use Ethereum as your currency it's your right to, to do that. Whereas I think that we're coming away from a political system that says you must use the Canadian dollar and you must use the US dollar. And we're still there, but we're in this, this weird quasi zone where like these currencies are arguably in the middle of some sort of weird collapse. We don't really know when that will happen, but I think that we agree that at some point in the future, they kind of have to. Uh, it wouldn't be a collapse so much as it would be a transition, I believe. Because right. yeah, like, I, agree too. I, like yeah. the, I think we've progressed enough into the future that we we can avoid a collapse. But it like it doesn't mean it wouldn't be bumpy. But I definitely think that it'll be more of a transition than a collapse into something I, I, else. I, I feel like I largely agree with what you're saying, and I agree that um, it's it's a wonderful thing to have choice, like to be able to choose what currency you want to use, that's incredible. And it's something that most people throughout all of history have never really had any say in. Other right. than, you know, like if they decide to barter, like do a direct barter for something, well then, yeah, I guess my currency is chickens now instead of denarii or whatever. Um, I, I, I agree with that. Um, whether or not currencies are going to like collapse in a hard collapse, like fiat currencies, I don't really know. Um, I would hope that they wouldn't. Um, if there is a transition, I would hope it's to be relatively smooth and we don't yeah. need like armies banging down people's doors to try to force a choice in one way or the other. Um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a very interesting couple of decades as we see how this all plays out.
I'm excited. Um, I'm a little bit terrified, but I'm also very excited <laughs> for it. You said something in the the first part of the episode where we were talking about denomination and value, and you said that um, if you hold shares in something, it can the value is produced by the business that is giving you those shares. And you said food stores. And that got me thinking, okay, cool. Post-apocalyptic, really need to make sure that I have a food store uh, in some capacity so that I still am holding some sort of value to give to the people in order to have recreate some sort of economic system. So anybody who's listening, uh, take notes. <laughs> so just to, to wrap this up, Brendan, um, before you go, what would you like to say to our audience about the discussions that we've had and about passive? I feel like discussions like this are super important. And the more people understand the kind of like high level goal of people who are involved in cryptocurrency, like that's a really good thing. Um, I think it's one of the probably greatest forces for um, what would be the word, like liberalization of the currency space in terms of like allowing people to have the kind of choice in what currency they want to denominate their business in and so on. And I think it's amazing. And I, I think I said something in the first part of this as well, where I talked about one of the biggest benefits of cryptocurrency being that it provides competition to fiat currencies, right? Yeah. So if there is literally no alternative, governments can do what they want, right? And you end up with cases of hyperinflation and so on. And there's not much you can do about it as an individual. But with these globalized cryptocurrencies where you have the ability to choose how your your money is denominated and where it trades and what sort of features it has, right? Um, it's harder for governments to get into a space where hyperinflation is a thing because people could just say, oh, we're just going to pack up and move to this other thing. You know, no big deal. We still have a lot of the same electronic features and so on, right? Um, I think just having that as as like a possibility is something which will put pressure on governments to, you know, be more or fiscally responsible and um, hopefully not allow that sort of thing to happen. You know, I, I don't see fiat currencies like going anywhere anytime soon, but I, having this as like a possibility, I think makes it even more likely that they won't because uh, it's, it's, it would be so easy for them to just kind of like lose all ability to control. This is true. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Can you give us like um, a two sentence description for why people should come to passive Absolutely. or sign up for passive. Yeah. So um, passive was born out of my desire for uh, people to have control over their investments. I wanted that for myself and I wanted that for others. Uh, the whole point of this is that you don't need to give us your money. You can, you can control your money from whichever sort of account you want to work in. You can choose your brokerage account. You can choose your crypto exchange that you want to use and control it with this single unified interface that allows you to invest for the long term in a responsible manner. And that, that's where we want to go in the long run is uh, you know, we're not interested in holding your money directly because that gives us too much control. You should be able to decide what you do with your wealth, how it's invested, where it's held. And... Um, I hope you all, if you're listening to this podcast, you can appreciate that, uh, you know, wh where that desire is coming from. Oh, 100%. So yeah, you can, yeah you, can, you can find out more about us at Passive.com. That's P-A-S-S-I-V.com. Brendan, that is so in line with just the, the self-sovereignty of owning your money with respect to Bitcoin and yeah. certain cryptocurrencies and too. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, I'm sure that our audience will appreciate the fact that the control is still in their hands because it, it should be. We should all have our control over our own money. There's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brendan, you, for Brendan. coming on for part one and part two of this episode. It was very exciting to hear from you and we'll keep in touch. 
Absolutely. Thanks so much for inviting me on. This has been one of the most interesting conversations I've had in months. This is great. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> Everyone listening, stay tuned. The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Margakshi Palwi, and the guests on the GoFull Crypto podcast are solely their own and are not intended as financial advice. The content discussed is for informational purposes only.